If you're one of the people that love this show, make sure you go over to holyfullproductions.com and check out our home. You can read articles. You can see my personal journals straight out of the typewriter. You can see the weekly link roundup of all the interesting things I run across. You can see drawings. You can see books recommended for the book club. Or if you're like me and you like things simple, you can just have it sent right to your inbox by signing up for the newsletter, which goes out almost every day. And of course, you can help support this show through either monthly subscriptions or generous one-time donations, all at hoyfulproductions.com. So what I have in front of me right now is a big book that says Why Vinyl Matters. I'm, I've been loving this book. Have you? Yes. I just got it a few days ago, so I've only got oh, about... Oh, I would have sent one to you, darling. I'm so sorry about that. No, that's all right. I'm happy to pay for it because this is a gorgeous book. I mean, it's just so... Just even without even going into what's inside of it, just the way it looks, you, it's very beautiful. It's fantastically oh, designed. That's really, really kind of you to say. Thank you very, very much. How many years did it take to put this sucker together? Let me tell you, never write a book. I, I, I'm writing another book right now, and I'm just like, every time I don't know why I do it to myself. I fucking love it, <laughs> but it's complete horrible. That that book, I think, was two years it took me to do that book, which doesn't sound like that long, but it's like. Two years of my, like my poor my poor husband is just you know he's basically a a, a a what do you call it a widow's not the widower but you know what I mean like a, a writing <laughs> widower as soon as I start a new project I get super into it and I just I love it yeah but that that took me over two years to do yeah you I mean it seems like there's a few of them as like I said I only got about I think forty pages in so far. Um, a few of them you did, it's obvious, like the Fat Boy Slim you did in person, but were some of them like remote as well? Yeah, I would say, I would say a majority of them were remote because for me, um, like I was kind of, I'd, I'd, I'd worked in the music business when I was younger and then one of my friends was murdered and I completely freaked out about it and I moved to England. And like, I, so I hadn't really worked in the business or had any sort of, uh, like music business connections really, except for actual friends. So when I started, are we, are we doing this right now, by the way? Yeah. Let me to kind of get into the whole story. Oh, yeah, okay. yeah. Um, so the story with that book was, is that I've not worked in the music business. I've been the, the, um, the head of marketing at Interscope Geffen A&M, which is how I know the gorgeous and fabulous Drew from Drudge, one of, <laughs> in my opinion, seriously, one of the best rock bands ever. And I think, What's going to happen with Dredge is I think like probably 20 years from now, there's going to be like a documentary about them, like, like searching for sugar, Sugarman. And people are going to be like, oh my God, this band is incredible because they are, they are amazing and incredible. And I wish that they were, they deserve so much more credit than they've gotten. And they're all fantastic but I people too. Oh God. There's not, a, I mean, like every single one of those got like, Gavin Hayes, one of my dearest friends, like Drew, I mean, all of them are just beautiful, talented humans, and I fucking love them. Anyway, I'm going completely off, off the thing. So That's done, the best I've thing. <laughs> so like, kind of my, my career arc is I worked, I worked at um, several labels, and I did Interscope, and then I left Interscope to go um, help Gwen Stefani start up Lamb, which is her fashion label. Then I left that to go work at Facebook, and during that whole kind of time, I was getting a master's. And my master's is in 
as in uh, Morrissey, Morrissey fandom as religion. And then my friend Hunter McPherson um, was murdered in San Francisco. He was walking home with his girlfriend one night and some guy came up to him and mugged him and shot him on the street. And that I completely freaked out, sold everything I own and decided to move to England. And the only way I could move here was to get a PhD because it's very difficult to get a passport here. Um, and so I, I, I got the PhD, I met an English guy, I got married. And like during that whole process, I was just kind of like, I really, really want to, I want to write a commercial book about something that's really important to me. I'd written a couple of academic books and academic books just by their nature are like 60 to hundred pounds to buy. And you know, they just, there's something you're passionate about, but it's not for like the everyday kind of person to be reading. And so I just was talking to a friend one night and I'm like, I really, really seriously, Chad, what I wanted to do is I wanted to do a book about Yacht Rock because growing up in Santa, where, you, where did you grow up by the way? I grew up here as well. I grew up, actually, okay, yeah, so you, I saw you grew up yeah. in Santa Cruz, so did I. No. Yeah. Oh dude, what high school did you go to? I actually went to Bellarmine for high school, so I, I got out by Shut then. <laughs> oh my God, all the hot guys went to Bellarmine. <laughs> If you played water polo, I probably had a crush on you. Did you play water polo? No, I didn't. What what year okay. were you? Ancient, a lot older than you, I'm sure. Um, I graduated in 1990. Okay, so I'm 96. So we probably don't oh, have you any are, people in common. No, no, no. You're you're an embryo. You're an, an, <laughs> an infant terrible. It's been a long time since somebody called me that. <laughs> an infant terrible. I know. I was talking to someone the other day, and they were just like, "Do you remember when everybody was? We were like the youngest, and now we're the old." It was like, "Do you remember when we were the youngest in like the scene?" Dot dot dot. And now we're the oldest. <laughs> uh, yeah, like it's really bad because I teach. I teach at a university um, a couple days a month. And I'll say to the students, I'm like, oh my God, I'm old enough to be your mother. And they'll look at me like, of course you are, you ancient old crone. And I'm just like still in wonder of like, how can that be? Don't they know that I'm actually like 21 inside? (laughs) Um, But the book I really wanted to write is I wanted to write a book about like the music and kind of that, that kind of, if you would, like the soundtrack of growing up in the the 80s and 90s in Santa Cruz. And that was like all about the Doobie Brothers. It was about like kind of like ska music and English beat and that whole vibe. And like the my, my then literary agent got so sick of hearing me talk about how much these records were so amazing. She's like, why don't you just write a book about records, about why vinyl matters? And I was like, oh, that's a good idea. And so that's how the the whole long point of this is, that's how... I ended up doing the book and I didn't have that many connections really anymore. Like in the music business, cause I'd been away. I began the PhD. I hadn't been in the, the, um, the biznatch if you would. And I just started cold reaching out to people like strange, like stranger danger. Like I would just, just email, like I made a list of who I'd want to interview. And that's how, that's how I ended up getting the people that I got. Like my ideal people was Henry Rollins. My dream person was Lars Ulrich. Um, and I was lucky enough to get them. But yeah, I, to come back to your point, I would say about three-fourths of the, of the interviews were a phone and about a quarter were in person. So there's, there's a couple interesting things that I want to pull out just considering what I do. Like, tell me about that, that, cold, that cold calling, basically, cold calling process. You know, like, how did you get that to work for you? I mean, I have to do it. So oh, it's a, definitely something I could yeah. learn. Well, it is horrendous. 
It's so bad. Like, do you, I don't know if they still have them in America, but like street sheet, like you're sitting there and you're like, how you've had a couple drinks and you're outside and like a homeless person comes up to you and they're like street sheet, like they're trying to get, you know, and you're like, oh dude, I don't, I don't, I feel bad, but I really don't want your street sheet. Like, that's kind of how I felt. Like I was like (laughs) trying to, (laughs) or like, you know how you're walking down. If you don't live in in San Francisco, you would have if people listen to your podcast, but like in a lot of metropolitan cities, there are people that are having kind of like a flea market in the middle of the night. Like you'll come out of like a nightclub and at 1130 at night, there's like a flea market going on on like a towel um, outside a club, you know, people trying to sell like parts of a broken radio and like a, a bread, a bread maker that doesn't work. You know, nobody <laughs> wants this shit. And that, that's how I felt. I'm just like, please, please take this. Um, and what I just ended up doing is just, you have to get that one person, you have to get that one person that either people know or has enough cachet that nobody wants to be the first person. So that first, the first couple people have to be good, if that makes any sense. Right. And you have to get them to say yes. So my first person was Henry Rollins. Wow. And That's a good place to start. I will, <laughs> oh, I will always love Henry Rollins till like the end of my days because I didn't know Henry at all. And I sent, I found this, and you probably do this a lot too. You know, you find the, if you're lucky, you might find a PR or a management contact to an artist online. Um, and if you, and then you fire off an email and it seems like this black hole of the world wide web, mm-hmm. which you most likely will never hear anything back from. So I, f- I find this email for Henry Rollins and I like send this email. I'm, I didn't have a book deal. I just had the idea. And within about half an hour to an hour of sending it, I get an email back. Wow. And I remember, look, I remember looking at my inbox going, Oh my God, says Henry Rollins. Oh my God, says Henry Rollins. And like, my, I called my husband, my husband's like very long suffering. I call, I, I'm like, Oh my God, James, Henry, Henry Rollins has emailed me. And he's like, that's great, honey. And I'm like, no, Henry Rollins has emailed me. And he's like, Oh, that's great. Honey. And like, so then I finally pushed the email. I was too scared to even look at it. I pushed the email and look at it. And Henry said, um, you know, I will give you an awesome interview. So he didn't say awesome because he's Henry Rollins. He said something much more intelligent. He said, I'll give you an, a great interview uh, once you get a book deal. You can use my name to get a book deal. So from that point on, wow. I could say, I'm trying to get a book deal. And Henry Rollins has said he'll give me, you know, I, I said it much more eloquently than that. But I had Henry. And Henry opened the door for everything else that came after it. If you if you look in the back of the book in the thank yous, like Henry Rollins is like the first or second person I I think. What an incredible act of kindness on his part! Isn't that just incredible? I'm not surprised because everything I've ever heard about Henry says pretty much the same thing that he's like pretty much the nicest person on the planet. He's so nice, and like, are you looking at the book right now? I am. Is he is he is he thanked? He's like on the top of the thank yous, isn't he? Yeah, he's number three. Oh, that's good. Is he before my husband? I bet he's before my husband. Uh, let's see. <laughs> <laughs> I think let's maybe so. not highlight that. Let's maybe not highlight that. <laughs> he beat Lars, that's, that's for sure. Well, that's I mean, the thing is, is it, yeah, but without Henry, I wouldn't have had Lars. You know what I yep. mean? And, and 120%, like, Henry has been so wonderful to me. Like, I've sent him a couple emails about my new project I'm working on, and he sent me stuff back. And it's just like, he's no reason to be nice to me. No reason at all. You know, he doesn't know me. I've never met him in real life. 
but he's always like, he always just like lights up my day. Like he'll send an email and say, Hey, Dr. Jen. And I'm like, Oh my God, Henry <laughs> Rollins called me Dr. Jen. Because it isn't, it isn't just the music or the persona. It's the person himself that is just it floors me that someone can be so generous. Have you listened to his podcast at all? I do. And it makes me really upset because it's so much better than mine. It's so I'm infrequent. Just... It's such a bummer because it's so good. Mm. I was just listening to the episode so on, on Lemmy and it's totally reminding me of, of what you're saying right now because basically what he's telling in that Lemmy story about how Lemmy just showed up to that, uh, they're recording that West Memphis 3 benefit album and Lemmy just showed up and, and he's like, well, why did you say yes? And he's like, because you're my friend and you needed me. And it just, uh, that seems like a complete description of what you're saying about Henry. He's like, yeah, um, of course I'll do it. Why not? Why wouldn't I do it? I mean, my, my new book is about Nico from the Velvet Underground. And it's been like, Henry is a massive Nico fan. And just some of the emails we've exchanged about it, it's just, even if it's just a couple lines here and there, it's just, he's taking the time out of his schedule to do it. And I would, I would never go so far as to say, oh, I'm friends with Henry Rollins. I w- would say that the way he walks through the world is inspired. It has inspired and impacted me probably more than any other celebrity I've ever met. And I mean that because he truly is an inspiring person and I want to be more like him in terms of being generous and taking time out for other people, even if it's not obvious how it will benefit you. And so it's, it's kind of one of the reasons I try to always mention him whenever I do any sort of interviews or I talk to people, because it's important that people, to people know like that does make a big difference, you know? That's kind of one of what I've found so far. One of the most incredible things about doing interviews is you don't expect when you start it, at least I didn't, you know, I'll ask you obviously to give your opinion on this, but I didn't expect anything other than them just to be experiences. I didn't actually go in thinking, oh, I'm actually developing relationships. Mm. You know, like I, not that I, I didn't want that to happen, but just kind of, I didn't think about it. I just like, oh yeah, I'll talk to them and then that'll be that. But just the, what happens after that and, and just the way that you end up meeting people and it's, it's incredible what, what an interview can become if you just kind of like become part of the process. And I think that speaks though to you as well as a person um, because, you know, like take, for example, I just interviewed Mark Lanigan for my Nico book mm. and it's hilarious. Cause when I was like 18 years old, my first music industry job was doing a gig at Slim's in San Francisco with the screaming trees and I'm 18. I literally am still a virgin at this point. Not that that plays any part into the story, but I am. <laughs> Sorry, Mark Lanigan. That's nothing to the story, but it's more to say how naive I was and how like fresh faced I was. And, and um, you know, I'm going to see this band Screaming Trees from Seattle. And it all seemed very like overwhelming and scary. And I'm in the big, you know, I'm from Santa Cruz, California. I'm in the big bad San Francisco and I just remember Mark being very like, he just seemed very um, aloof and very dangerous and not someone that I could really talk to. And then when we did Queens of the Stone Age, uh, I, I worked the, show, the tour that Mark was on and I didn't really talk to him then. So when the opportunity came up to interview him for the, my new Nico book, I was like, I mean, I have so much respect for him as an artist, but I was quite scared. I'm like, what am I going to say to this person? You know, is he going to be mean? Is he going to like me? And he is an absolute hoot. 
Like you would, you should totally get him on your podcast. He's so funny. I'm a huge fan he's of so him. nice. Yeah, he's so nice. And it's just like, like I said to him, I'm like, he doesn't drink anymore. I said, when I come to LA, I'm buying you and your, you and your missus, I'm buying you guys dessert or taking you out to like the nicest coffee bar ever. Cause he's just cool. You know what I mean? And I think you would be, I would be friends with Mark Lanigan if I lived or I would make him out stock him. I'd be like, it's me again. Uh, <laughs> But that is, it's like such a nice surprise. And like, it's so, I think we're kind of like socialized to be in like our own little tribes. And when you realize maybe the part of the reason that you like that music is because he is of your tribe. It's really a profound kind of thing, isn't it? Right. Actually, that's a really good point. When you think about, you know, there's certain, you know, I'm not sure that necessarily, um, I'm just going to throw this out because you mentioned the name before, but I'm not positive Morrissey and I would get along. Just because I've oh god no I've heard no, he's no, very no. difficult, but there's probably even in somebody like that um, that makes him sound awful, and that's not what I mean to say. But somebody who's more you can like go ahead. Sorry, I was gonna say I was gonna say like with Morrissey is a good thing. It's a good example. I have really funny Morrissey stories, so I won't go into here. But um, but with Morrissey, it's like you know that music for me had a very important time and place, and that's almost a different kind of thing I think than like with, with some of the inner, like with Lars Ulrich is a good example. Like I had, I'm like, Oh my God, it's Lars Ulrich. It's Metallica. And he's just funny and cool and nice. And it doesn't make the, the person transcends the music and the persona. I think with Morrissey, it's a hard one because his persona is a big part of what the whole appeal is in general. Does that make sense? Totally. And I think when, like when you really get into it and you really look at the lyrics, there is a distance there in the sense that, mm. you know, like, for example, it, I think probably I listened to the song Ask maybe 20, 30 times before I realized, oh, that's what this is about. Uh, what is it about? It's, it's essentially it's, it's comparing relationships to like nuclear bomb, like surviving a nuclear bomb. You know, is it? Yeah. Shut up. Yeah. Hold on. It's like you're saying for 30 years, I've never caught on. God, somebody's quite slow. The bomb will, it's something I'm, I'm awful to bring it up and then not be able to exactly quote it, but the bomb will bring us together or the bomb will tear us apart or something like that. Um, it's the bomb. It's the, the bomb, bomb that will bomb. bring us together. Yes. Is nice. yeah. yeah, you need yeah. the melody, don't you, to get it? <laughs> and and I'm, I'm unfortunately singing is not what I'm known for, but you know, I try, I try anyway. But even then, like even saying that, I'm like, even I feel uncomfortable even making that that assertion. Like I'm like, actually, maybe that's not what it's about. So that's like kind of like with the distance. I mean, with him, where you're like, well, I think I understand him. So it's not a total surprise, right, that he would be like that in real life. Do you know what's weird though? Is um, one of the questions I are, I asked Mark last night is I said, what do you think is misunderstood about Nico? And he just he said that people ask him that about himself. People ask him like. What, what's most misunderstood about you? And I said to him, I said, Mark, like your whole thing is like, I am mysterious. I'm an enigma. I mean, is, is it just me or is Mark Lanigan? Do you think Mark Lanigan, you think mysterious? Totally. Kind of like dark and like, ugh. And he's sitting there telling me about his cat and like hanging out with his <laughs> nephew. And he and I are talking about like, we both love Peter Murphy. And I'm just like, I said to him like, Mark, no, 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 no. You can't be like this. Like you, you're the mystique is whole thing of it. But then what's interesting is he doesn't see it. He's not trying to create a mystique. It's just, it's what we're reading into what he's putting out. Does that make sense? Totally. And what's, what's really funny about this is, so I have another podcast that I just started back up with a friend and 
him and I in in talking about you know bringing the podcast together, I had stumbled across this like personality testing online. So I'm like you, I, and I couldn't stop thinking about it. It was like in my head for like months. I'm like, wow, that thing was really fucking accurate. So I told him, I'm like, you have to take this. And we talked about this on the show, but like essentially we found out all these things about ourselves that like, oh, this is why we get along. This is why we work together. And the reason I'm bringing this up is it's essentially, it's it's more, um, it's about how you communicate to the world. The test is what it tells you. And mine is mystique. And is you, you kept saying that word. And I'm like, oh my God, this is relating right to that. And essentially like what it says is like that it's not that people try to be that way. It's just how we communicate with the world that we hold certain things back. We don't even realize that we're doing it and that, but that appears to other people as mystery because like, Mm. Oh, he only told me this, but he didn't tell me all of this stuff. So I, Oh my God, you have to send this to me. I'm desperate. Of course. I'm like, what am I? I want to know what I am. It's so fascinating. What do you think I am? I don't know. I mean, I I barely know you. I think you should try it. It'd be, it'd be amazing if I nailed it, wouldn't it? <laughs> oh my God. Okay. So you should send me this test. And at the end, maybe do like a little paragraph on like, or just like to yourself notes. And then I'll tell you what I get. Definitely. I, I think it's i uh, I'll send it to you as well, but it's how to fascinate.com. It's okay. Yeah. That sounds great. That sounds really interesting. It's but really fascinating. What, what, one of the things like, sorry, I keep talking about my new book when I no, know of course not. You're, I'm so thrilled. I'm so happy you bought why vinyl matters and you're reading it and you're talking, we'll talk more about that. But the book I'm working on right now is I'm researching and creating the complete biography of, of Nico from the Velvet underground. And one of the things that I find so, you know, appealing about her is the mystique. And one of the things I find most disturbing about her is not her per se, but because all you have to think about because she's existing in a moment before the internet and before constant information um, that the, the, the memory of her that pe- that the popular populace that's aware of her has is so not who and what she was because it's what we've projected onto her. Does that make sense? Totally. And I think that that mystique personality, it was probably more common back then. I it's like, for, oh, yeah. for me, I find it really difficult because it's like people, Oh, you need to be doing stories on Instagram. You need yeah. You need to be doing this. And I'm like, ah. and it, it always felt until I like read that and I kind of understood. I'm like, oh yeah, my brain does work that way. I always felt kind of uncomfortable where I'm like, oh, that's why I feel uncomfortable. So it's it's interesting that, you know, I wonder which, now that we're talking about that, I wonder which of those personalities designed social media that they think everybody should be like that. You know, like more people were probably like Nico where they were probably, especially in in positions of fame where it's like, Oh, I don't want to share that because that's dangerous to share. Well, also like with her, one of the questions I've asked artists is, and actually I think it's a bad question because none of them have answered it really. They've kind of like danced around it. One of the things that I ask people is this idea of art for art's sake with Nico. Like if you listen to any of her solo records, which are, I mean, they're just weird and Gothic and beautiful and so not commercial, like they're made because she had to get this music out of her. And that's such a foreign idea now, like the art for art's sake. Like that's something that sounds very appealing. Like I'm just going to make this because I'm an artiste and I have to make it. But really that goes exactly against everything that we, are, we as a Western world are holding as important right now. It's all about consumerism. It's all about being seen. 
It's all about look at me and me as an individual being so important as the viewed kind of object and commodity. And that's, you know, that makes me think there's not, there's not going to be another Dredge. There's not going to be another Nico. There's not going to be another Mark Lanigan because all those acts exist in a world where the art is the thing that's most important, not the other things. It, it's, we're at a weird precipice. I feel like we're, we're looking at so many, you know, you've, I've talked about this with a couple guests too, you know, like things like automation, all this stuff is like, it's, we're looking at what could be re, redefinition of what it is to be human even. Yeah. And it's scary. But then at the same time, I, when I look backwards, I look at television, I look at radio, I look at uh, the industrial revolution, refrigeration, all these things that completely changed the world, the automobile. I think they all kind of felt the same way too. Mm. So th- that's kind of where I take a little bit of a little bit of hope, and I think that your vinyl book actually makes a really strong point that certain things persist regardless. You know, like they fr- things fracture off. You know, like the mainstream may go this way, um, but then there will always be a group that's that's here in this. You know, wh- whether it's vinyl or whether it is. Uh, playing guitar instead of you know writing on a com- writing music on a computer all these things persist and I, I think that there's something in the reason that they persist i should say is that there's something inherently human in them that can't make them go away so i think that people like nico will always be born um they might not they not, may not become a beyonce but they will always have something you know i, I that's that's the that's the optimism in me, I guess. <laughs> do you think that, I mean, just kind of two prong on that though. Do you think that Beyonce, people are still going to be ta- be saying she's a groundbreaking artist and she is done all this interesting stuff as an artist in 30 years from now? Hmm. That's a really good question. I think that I can't remember. I wish I have these things in my head that I hear people say, and I can't remember where I read them or anything. It's awful. <laughs> You're a very bad person, young man. <laughs> but naughty, some, naughty. There was somebody that said something along the lines of what we're looking at is like in music, we're looking at there's going to be, there's always going to be the pop star. You know, there's always mm-hmm. going to be that. But all of this indie stuff that is actually doing pretty well, not at least monetarily, but doing as well as far as audiences because of streaming will always exist underneath that as a different world. So I don't think that she's going to be... I like that. I don't think she's going to be remembered as the Beatles. But she's going to be remembered for her public persona, probably more than her music. And that's just my personal opinion. I don't really... I wouldn't say I'm super familiar with her music. So um, it's definitely a shallow judgment. But, you know, like I think you look at somebody like Madonna, right? Madonna's kind of more about being Madonna than she is about the music. Uh, of course, you know, like those of us who grew up in the 80s, those 80s songs of hers are in our head forever. But for everybody else, she's just a person who had a place in celebrity and in a place in society. And I think kind of that's what Beyonce will become. I, I think that is really astute for you to say, because, you know, every generation thinks that their generation is like the one that's breaking new ground and Da, 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 da. And, you know, it's interesting talking to young people, young people talking to students, 
children. It's it's um it's interesting talking to them because they'd see Madonna as you just explained as an elder statesman and as a, a figure in popular culture, not as this you know, all the different things that we may push onto her as quote unquote Madonna. And I think that's really a powerful thing. And I think that's important. It's exactly what you're talking about right now. Um, but when, going back to vinyl, just for a quick second, is that okay if I do that? I can go anywhere you want. That's the whole point of this. Okay. So going back to Madonna, uh, vinyl, the thing that is interesting about my book is that the way that book has kind of springboarded and into other things and the fact that you can be sitting there in the Bay Area, California, looking at it, and you have an insight into something that's important to me and important to all those people that are in that book. But also, there's like a community that that and then a conversation that that book has started that I think has really been beautiful, in my opinion, in terms of you know, it's just it, how how that opens up a conversation about material. I'm so sorry, my I just got a a random notification um how that how that opens up how that's opened up like different conversations of, with people all around the world that love records and and the importance they play and i think that's been really really one of the great things about the book um and the fact that you know we can talk about henry rollins like a person not like just a celebrity entity i think is is interesting too yeah i think there's um Something in the Norman, well, actually, I can't remember his last name, his real last name, Fatboy Slim. Norman Cook. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's so it's so difficult when somebody has like a, you know, a, a stage persona stage that name. you're used to calling them by. But in that in that conversation where he talks about tribes and cults or... Uh, oh, yeah. And, he, you know, he says that it, things happen online so fast that people don't have time to buy the wardrobe. And I, I thought that it's was so a true. really amazing point. But I do think that what you're talking about also fits in there that, you know, like vinyl, maybe it's a cult, you know, um, people might be uncomfortable with that word, but, you know, it's a subsection, it's a subgroup, it's a, it's a sub society, maybe. And, and that's, that's kind of what's amazing about the internet, too, is like, oh, because of Amazon, even though, you know, people will complain about it, because of that, I had this book in front of me two days before I, before I had my conversation with you. So I can enrich the conversation, but then I also have this thing that I'm fascinated by on a topic that I'm fascinated by. And it's kind of like a oh, yeah. passport. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, it's weird with Amazon because I'm like the queen of, I like independent retail, like whether it's a record store, record stores, of course, number one is a bullet. Love my independent record store, love my independent clothing store, love my independent bookstore, et cetera, et cetera. But I have been completely seduced by Amazon because of what exact that, that immediacy of Amazon. I have to admit, I'm a complete and utter Amazon whore. And I think that that kind of dilemma that I have, it like my morals and values, which come up against the reality of my day-to-day life i think that that is just kind of i mean and it was like living in the 21st century but i think that that's kind of the 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 um tension that we find ourselves in like the person we kind of like to be and the person that with the the so many demands on our time we find ourselves being i think that also takes us back to that you know we've been talking a lot about dualities so far there's a duality in all of us and in that um, Norman Cook interview, he says something also about how he has all the vinyl, but he still rarely takes it out because of oh. because of convenience, right? Mm-hmm. And, yeah, yeah. And I thought about it. You know, I have vinyl here, but most of the time, I I don't even I have an AirPod. I mean, a HomePod, 
which is a great speaker. But most of the time, I place things literally through my phone. I don't even bother to connect to the Bluetooth to that, let alone get up and put on the vinyl. But there are times when I need that, when I need to put on the vinyl or when I need to use the speaker. You know, they're all different stages. But I think that what we're seeing with Amazon and, and, and record store that split there is kind of like what we were just saying about music. Maybe inside of us, there are two needs. You know, there's a need oh, like that. for experience. You know, when I need an experience, I go to the record store. But when I just need a quick fix on a song, I'm going to stream it. You know, like, oh, I'm, I'm like when I was reading your book, I was like, you, you mentioned that the most mentioned album in there is London Calling. I automatically said, I need to listen to that album right now because I haven't heard it in so long. My phone is sitting next to me. So I pushed play and I was listening to it while, while I was reading. That's it's, it, you know, maybe it's a different need that I was feeding there. I was feeding an intellectual need as opposed to an experiential need. Do you know, I'm doing a talk with the BBC for this BBC thing next week, and I'm so stealing every single thing you said. So <laughs> please, please send me the transcript immediately. Um, I was just going to say, this is a little bit off the topic, but it was really, can I tell you about that Fat Boy Slim interview mm-hmm. for like doing that one? So massive fan of the House Martins, his old band, massive, massive Anglophile, love Fat Boy Slim. And that was kind of like one of the interviews I kept checking back, checking back. Will he do it? Will he do it? That was when I found from stalking his management. And, um, and finally, yeah, he's going to do it. And, and, um, you can go to his house in Hove and Hove is this kind of like posher area of Brighton and Brighton would be kind of like Santa Cruz. It'd be like the Santa Cruz, if you would, of England, Mm -hmm. like, kind of bohemian, a little expensive, but bohemian, vegan, you know, like they have, I kid you not, I stayed in a hotel there not long ago and they had like, the, I stayed in like a premium room and they had these bonbons on my bed. And I kid you not, it was like virgin bees have like, this honey is from virgin <laughs> bees that have been, that have been that the animal welfare has been good to them. I'm like, it's a bee. And then, then I'm like, are bees virgins? Like, I don't even know how that works. But anyway... <laughs> But you know what I'm, you know the kind of vibe I'm throwing down here. Right. So that's what, so he lives in this place, and um, he t- I had just gotten my driver's license in the UK, so I gave myself it takes like an hour and a half to get from where I live in London to Norman's house, and I gave myself three hours to get there because I'm like, who knows? Because I I knew that I was gonna be driving slow. I just got my driver's license. Da, da, da. So I get to his house and like I pull up in front of his house and I'm sitting there and I'm like, oh my God, I have an hour and a half now. What should I do? And as I'm sitting there in my car trying to figure out, do I leave? Do I come back? Like I know where the house is now. Literally, Norman pulls up in his Mini Cooper right next to my car and like just stares and looks at me. And then he like goes and parks and I'm like, oh shit, what do I do now? Like, do I fucking run? Like, do I, <laughs> like, what do I do? So I sat there like, like a deer in the headlights. And he comes around and he, he like gets out of his car, knocks on my window. And he's like, are you Jennifer Alder Bickerdike? And I'm like, yeah, how did you know? And he goes, oh, he's like, uh, um, he's all, I saw your, uh, he's all, I saw some videos of you online. And that I was, I was so mortified of that. I was like, oh my God, he saw videos of me online. Like you forget that like, you're, you know, when you put stuff out on social media or out on a website or you do an interview, you forget it's out there for anybody to see, you know? Right. And I was like, Oh my God, what video did he see? Um, and then I'm like, Oh my God, I'm so sorry. I'm, I'm early, blah, blah, blah. And so he we just went into his house. He like made me a coffee. He gave me some like 
you know, got me all settled in. I just like hung out in his house and waited for him while he showered. He just gotten back from the gym. All of this to say that it's, you know, I'm sitting in this, I'm sitting in this house, which is absolutely stunning and has like beautiful views of the sea. I'm sitting there with someone that is an internationally recognized artist. But the fact that he and I can sit there and fight about, you know, in a good humored way about he thinks Fleetwood Mac is shit. And I think Fleetwood Mac are amazing. And the fact that he loves Santa Cruz, I'm from Santa Cruz and I love Santa Cruz. It's just it, the whole the whole setting of his house and the whole persona fell away. And it was just two nerds talking about music. Um, and that was just so awesome. Like that was, it was kind of like, I forgot who he was, quote unquote. And just the person Norman Cook came out, like Fatboy Slim was kind of put to the side. And the person that started you know, they started off as a DJ, they started off, you know, being the dork that brought records to people's parties. That person was who I was talking to. And that was really magical. Like you were talking about the beginning of when we started chatting right now, that was really cool. And that's the power of music. Yeah. There's that strange, you know, like we, we have all these um, legends and uh, mythologies that we build around people uh, to, and they kind of separate us from them in the sense that, you know, like Kurt Cobain, for example, will say, um, there's all this mythology built around who he was and what he was like. And because he's dead, um, you know, a lot of that kind of stays as who he was, but, Oh yeah. But there's very few people who actually knew him and there's so much more complexity there, you know, like even like this conversation we're having, we're very open conversation, but there's so much that we're not going to know about each other by the end of this. I wonder when you you think that you think that maybe I'm not that complicated. Maybe you know everything. <laughs> I wonder when you when you're writing books like the book on Nico or like the book that you did on Ian Curtis, you're writing about someone who's already passed. That all this mythology has built up around. What is the process like? I mean, what is that like to try to dig through all of that and like try to get to what you need to say about them without taking in all these stories that may or may not be true. Well, that's like a really deep question. And I, next time I come home to America, you and I have to go out immediately. Um, but I think she started off that with talking about Kurt Cobain. And one of the first bands I ever worked with in my career was Nirvana. And when I say I worked with them, I was like 18 years old going to, you know, to going to, to gigs of theirs in San Jose. And, you know, just those, and people are always like, oh, what was Kurt Cobain like? And I'm like, well, I'm six, I'm really tall. I'm six feet tall. So I'm like, he was short and smelly. <laughs> and he was just like in a band. Like he was like, he wasn't like Kurt Cobain. He was Kurt Cobain, lead singer of this band. You know what I mean? Like, and I think knowing that and what, what, what has become after he's dead is nothing really to do with him. It has to do with stories and consumerism and people projecting onto who and what he was. And I'm not saying that's not important, but that's that's a, that's that individual story, not necessarily the story of Kurt Cobain. Does that make sense? Totally. And I think uh, more than anybody, in my opinion, he compares pretty damn close to Ian Curtis in that way. Oh yeah, I mean Ian, Ian Curtis. I've written so much, and like I did a PhD about Joy Division. Um, and the thing about Ian Curtis, I mean, he was only 23 years old when he when he killed himself. Super tragic and horrible but he hadn't really even done that much with his life. You know what I mean? He'd written this amazing music, but you know, at 23, even, you know, if you're 23 and you're listening to this, believe me, there's so much ahead of you in life from there. 
And that, I think kind of what I came up with doing all the research I did for my, my books and my PhD was that it is not necessarily about that person. That in, like, it's not about Incurus or Kurt Cobain. It's the fact that they're not there to continue to add fodder and to create material so you can project onto them and you can make them whatever you want them to be. And that's, that's almost, that's what's so appealing about them, but that's also the danger. So like in the Nico book I'm writing, that's thing I actually, I said to Henry about an email, I said, I'm really worried that I'm going to project my own thoughts and feelings onto who and what she was uh, instead of who she actually was. But then if you think about it, aren't it, isn't anyone just a, a, a combination of, of, of other people's opinions, if that makes any sense in a lot of ways. Like you and I may both may know Drew Roulette, Roulette from Dredge, but you may have different stories and different anecdotes and slightly different things about him than I do. But that doesn't mean make one or the other not true. Does that make... I'm, I'm kind of all oh, over the place in no, your question. Makes, that makes total sense. I think that there's... There's also something to be said about the fact that, you know, like uh, you writing the book, the reason that you're writing that book is to bleed into it, is for you to bleed into it because that's why you're writing it. You know, if, if someone was else was, someone else was writing it, they would bleed into it. That's why you can write 50 books about Nico and every one of them will be unique because the person has to bleed into it. That's the whole point of art. I love you. And if I wasn't married, I'd be like, come on, come on. Are you interested in living in the UK, darling? Um, I, but I think that that, it, it, but the other thing is what these people were talking about, whether it's Nico to like a certain select group of people or Kurt Cobain and Ian, I, I'd say like Nico's most cult all the way up to Kurt, who's probably the least, the most mainstream of those three figures we've mentioned. Uh, people are so highly invested in them and the idea of them because if you criticize that or if you question it, you're questioning them and they don't notice it. So for example, with Ian Curtis, um, one of, as part of my PhD, I went to his grave every month on the same day for a year. And I categorized all the stuff people left on his grave. So in doing this, I got to know everybody that worked at the graveyard very, very well, in, including the guy, that cremate, the guy that cremated and then buried Ian Curtis's ashes. He still worked at the graveyard. He'd been there for over 30 years. Wow. Um, and he ended up coming to my wedding, which is very, which is very strange. I know. Um, but, but it was like, it's like at that time I was getting married. It's like, who did I see all the time? Oh, I saw my friend Robert from Macclesfield cemetery. Of course, come along. Why not? You know? Uh, anyway, so all this to say, I've, I've done a couple of events where I'm talking about joy division and people ask me questions and people are like, Ian Curtis is not actually buried there. And I'm just sitting there going, and people get really pissed off when I say, well, at, well, you know, these are the facts I know. They get really defensive if I say anything, if I question them, because if I question it, I'm questioning them, the person and their own identity. I'm not questioning the validity of where Ian Curtis is buried or not. I'm questioning them and their whole persona that they've built around the idea of Joy Division and Ian Curtis. And those are two separate things. So that's, you know, people are so invested in, in their idea of the truth. Right. It's become a, a secular religion in that sense. Um, you know, like I, I talked about this with somebody previously, the idea of when you look at politics or you look at, um, you know, we'll just say politics or even religion, they become tied to someone's identity. And I'm not sure at what time yeah. in history that happened, but there used to be opinions that you had that were separate from who you are. 
And now they are part of who people are. So when you question uh, Christianity, people will get defensive because you're attacking them. When you question whether Kurt Cobain did this, whether Ian Curtis went here, you're, you're, you're toppling their identity structure. It's really weird how those things, how we let those things tie into us. But I'm sure I'm guilty of it. I'm, I'm positive of it in some way. I'm sure you're not. I'm sure you're, 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 you're like Mary Poppins, like um, <laughs> positively perfect. But the thing that I think since I've removed myself from living in the U.S., I'm in this weird position because I can't legally, even though I'm married to a British citizen, I cannot legally vote here. I can still legally vote in America. And as someone born and bred in the Bay Area, I didn't have any other choice but to be radically left-wing. Um, and now that I've been removed from that, I see there's a quite a bit of violence in being so invested in your opinions and your, like you're talking about, your beliefs and how that defines, how you define the world. And what I mean by that is I have one really good friend, for example, that hates Donald Trump. I have a friend I've known since I was five who voted for Donald Trump. And the friend that, the friend that hates Donald Trump is like, you need to tell the other friend, the Trump voter, she's a bad, evil, racist, horrible person. And I'm like, can you not see that if I go and say that to her, how is that going to change her opinion on anything? If you sit down and talk it through, like you and I are talking right now, that is the only way that change or understanding happens. But because what you're talking about has become an attack on that person. Um, you know what I'm saying? Like you're right. attacking them. So therefore that conversation is never going to happen. Like if she came out, if, if, if um, Trump hater came at Trump voters and you're a racist, horrible person, I've never known that to change someone's opinion. Right. Okay, you're right. Yeah, that'd be like me but calling you on the phone and going, "Hey, you're a shithead." Now let's talk. Yeah, uh, that's not yeah, gonna happen. Exactly. <laughs> you're, yeah, you're gonna hang exactly. Up. <laughs> yeah, believe what I think because I'm telling you this, and that I think is the scariest thing. We've come so we've become so so polarized. There's no room for those kind of conversations that there's no gray there's no like you know what like i love donald trump you hate donald trump well there's still some common ground in the venn diagram of life you know what i mean right or you just say or you just say like actually you know what i understand i may not agree with why you voted for hillary or why you voted for trump but i i can understand it i can empathize with it that i think is gone and i think that is really sad and scary i've been listening to sam harris have you ever heard of sam harris no, do I need to get on Sam Harris immediately? He has a podcast. Um, I've actually gone back from the beginning and been listening forward. So I'm, I think I'm two years behind. So I've actually been going through his episodes from the election and post the election. But he's, uh, I think his actual degree is in neurology, but he functions in society more as a philosopher. So he's, he's out there. He's not talking about the brain necessarily. Um, but on the podcast, he's literally that the whole podcast is really difficult conversations. And even to the point where it's, it's like difficult to listen to because you're like, I don't, I don't know what I believe here. Um, like he'll have somebody like he, he, he tends to his, his opinion on a lot of the episodes is he feels like, um, is Islamicism, which is different than Islamic. Um, I guess it's like a, the political arm of it. It's a really difficult word to say because of the S's, but he believes that's like the biggest threat to the world right now. And, but he brings people on because he's like, he's like, I want to talk about this. He's like, 
but people think when I talk about that, that I'm a racist or that I, mm. I hate Muslims. He's like, I don't. He's like, he's like, I just, he's like, I feel like this ideology is dangerous. So he'll bring on people that disagree with him and they will just go at it for like two hours and it gets heated sometimes. But like, at first I was, I, I, I found it very difficult to listen to because I'm, I, my tendency was like, yeah, you kind of do sound like a racist. But the more I've listened to it, I'm like, oh, he, he really isn't. And it took that time for me listening to him have all these different conversations, difficult conversations with different people to really begin to understand the complexity of him as a human being. And I think that's something we're not affording people anymore. Is we're not affording people time to develop. You know, we're, we're, we're literally jumping the gun. And sure, we can say it's from social media, but the social media is only amplifying something that's already inside of us. But we're, we're looking at 140 characters and going, that's who that person is. I know everything I need to know about them. But you can't. You know, you know like from digging up things about people who have passed, that it's even then, after doing years of research, you're, you're only getting a, a shallow window of a person. Yeah. I mean, like with Nika, one of the things that, one of the main things when I first, when I've told people that, oh, I'm doing this Nika book, they're like, oh, she was a racist. She hated black people. Da, 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 da. And one of the things I think about it, I'm like, I, I think all the things, even like me and Gavin Hayes from Dredge, like we've like, we joke about race and because I think sometimes when you, you, you know, like it just, I'm not saying it's good or bad, but because I think when you just are open and talk about it, it makes, it demystifies it and it makes it, it makes it so it's not a thing in a weird way. But I was thinking about that. I'm like, there's, there's been millions of times when like I've said or done something that if someone took it out of context or used that snippet of what I said, it could be totally taken the wrong way. And that is definitely what's happened with Nico is like what you're saying. People have taken these like snip, snippets and she's not here to like defend herself on anything. Um, but yeah, I think the, the political, the political situation is not good. I don't like talking about it because I feel like, um, not that you're asking me to talk about it, but I feel like I've been quite radicalized living in the UK in a lot of ways. And I feel very, I'm really relieved. I'm not living in the U S right now because I don't, I don't, I don't like people that are, I don't like the Trump supporters that are like so blind, but I also totally understand why Trump got in because I find the left as someone that grew up in Santa Cruz and, you know, would carry, would carry recyclables in my backpack for weeks until I found somewhere to put it, not in a landfill. Uh, I find it deeply disturbing that like there's this, that the, the liberals are so angry and so, not listening and not understanding. So I would find myself politically homeless if I lived in the U.S. right now. Yeah, it's a, it's a very strange, you know, it's a very easy for people to point out, you know, like, oh, the right, there's, there's a fraction of the right, the alt-right, they're very angry. But people are just starting to see that there's also a mirror image of that on the left. Of the yeah. People who are so angry that they're not even liberals anymore because the things yeah. that they're saying are fascist opinions. You know, there's like, this is the way things are. And then that's, well, you, okay, you're a fascist then. You're not actually a liberal. Liberal's about liberty. It's about people having different opinions. Yeah. Liberty is like why the NAACP uh, stood up for the KKK marching. Not because they like the KKK, but because they're like, well, damn it, they have the right to march because it's in the constitution. And if we don't stand up for them, 
then all of these people that are like us that believe what we believe won't be able to march. And people have forgotten that. Like you have to, the, the difficult thing about being on the left, if you're truly on the left, means that you have to stand up for people's rights to say things that make you want to throw up. It's it's a hundred. Well, I keep going back to that. Sorry, I've used this example hundreds of times, but that's the friend, the um, friend that said you need to tell your friend that voted for Trump that she's a racist and a horrible person. You know, and then when you actually ask her, like, why did you vote for Trump? And the reasons start coming out. It's like I totally, I I totally understand why you did, and that is that is ex- like like you said, that's what being liberal is. Is I may not 100% agree with that. That may not be how I walk through the world, but you can totally walk through the world in that way. And we can still be friends. Um, I think that, that that is how I've changed the most being living here is I under, I, I'm starting to understand the gray a lot more. And I think that I, that's what's like the gray, the gray is getting less and less, uh, you know, less and less valued, I think. And that that scares me. I mean, I'm glad I don't have children. And to be fair, I'm very happy I don't have children. I think it'd be very difficult to be raising them right now. Um, I think the world's a scary place, to be honest. It's very difficult to separate emotional decisions from logical decisions, I guess, in the sense that, you know, like people are making opinions based on emotional feelings. I, you know, like I would going back to that Sam Harris thing. I'm pretty sure that I went into that podcast with, an emotional opinion like oh if you say something that sounds remotely like this then i react this way and that's how i and, you know it's like oh if you start asking questions about this uncomfortable area about muslims i automatically assume that's racist but there's so much nuance that we've forgotten and i hope that i hope mm. we find our way back to nuance i really do because um steering us back into music too i think that that's what keeps the subcultures alive is nuance and that's how people build these, you know, like little tiny cults and tribes, like Fat Boy Slim was saying, you know, that there's that's nuance. It's it's you know, the, the difference between ska and reggae is nuance. Mm. It's super important. We know what's interesting. There's this um band that I wouldn't like I I co I say I co-manage them, like I really do nothing except sometimes act as like a, um, emotional counselor. Like my, my, my friend, he does, he does all the business management. I just say, you guys need to wear this instead of that. Like when I have time, but, um, they're called the false heads and they're, they're here in London. They're out of London. And I bring them up because the lead singer of false heads, I actually, I interviewed them last year at a festival and Iggy pop is their mentor. And so that kind of like propelled them on to being on this festival and me interviewing them. And I thought, what the, and uh, they're like, come to our show. And I'm like, Oh God. Okay. So I like, I go to the show. I was absolutely blown away. And then the lead singer said, let's go to dinner. And I'm like, Oh, I don't want to go to dinner with this 24 year old. Like he's going to have nothing to say, you know, not to be a cow, but it's true. You know, usually I was out to like three o'clock in the morning with this guy and not, not doing anything unsavory, just like talking about music, talking about politics, talking about, you know, all these is weird because all these bands I had worked on, like, like Elliot Smith and Eminem really kind of shaped who he was and where he was mentally in the world and his values. But it's all those things that underpin those bands. Like you're talking about the movies, what came before those bands and the values that are, that are, you know, part of that scene that's something that didn't have anything to do with our age at all. And the fact that we could have discussions like you and I are having right now, like I could say, 
I never knew, like we, one of the things we talked about early on was talking about Muslims. And I said, I never even knew a Muslim when I lived in Cal. I, I never, I never was aware of, of Islam the way that I am now living in the UK. And so we were just talking about that. And like, you can't, you can't even freely really talk about that. And that was so refreshing. Um, I don't know how I got onto that suddenly. I'm so sorry. I just like completely veered off. But one thing I think about, about that band, False Heads, is they all come from working class families. They all are kind of that, that punk ethos that we all really like. And I think that that kind of music coming from... Music really kind of being a reflection of where we're at as a society, that's becoming more and more rare because it's so expensive. You know, It isn't like when you and I were growing up where you could live in San Jose or Santa Cruz or London and you could work at a coffee shop and be in a band, like, like at the Clash were or whatever... You don't have that really anymore. So that idea of like music reflecting the everyman, I think that's far and few between. So when you find a band that's like that, it is really, really special, I think. Um, and I, that has nothing to do with anything that you said, but why not? Well, speaking of, speaking <laughs> of non-sequiturs, you totally reminded me of something. And have you read the book, Please Kill Me? Like you're gonna have, you're gonna be in, you're gonna be in, you're gonna be in hell by the way editing this i'm so sorry if oh, you I edit it i don't i all i edit out is if we say um like four times in a row <laughs> oh no i don't say that i just like talk without taking a breath you're gonna be like oh my god does this woman have like some sort of like oxygen on it's a her? conversation uh, yeah. it's the way it's supposed <laughs> I <know>. to be <laughs> no i love i absolutely love please kill me and um i've met julian before who's one of the authors she's absolutely incredible i love her love her love her love her and i love that book that book is so amazing and like that, I think that's a perfect example of nuance in the sense that you think you understand what punk is, and then you read that book and you go, "Oh, whoa!" Like uh, two examples for for instance, everybody seems to think that punk began with the Sex Pistols, but there was this huge, huge movement in America that I mean, it really only took place in over a little under a year, I think, that preceded that. And then there's also the fact that before punk became like a big thing when everybody had their albums out there were no punk albums there weren't so what were the punks listening to when they were hanging out reggae and ska mm, yeah and then that i think that's that connection with that working man's thing where they're like oh we totally relate to what these guys are saying but you don't when you when you from a historical point of view you know, like now you look back at punks back then you know like people that look like the sex pistols you don't imagine them sitting down and listening to like early ska records or early reggae, like just mellow music, you know, you expect something else, but it's, it's not true. And so so that, uh, that probably plays back into the idea of, you know, these legends and uh, mythologies that we build as well. And I think that all ties into the whole thing about politics too, because we build those same mythologies around political figures. You know, this is what this person stands for. Maybe not. Maybe that's not what they stand for. Maybe we just suck at listening. <laughs> no, that's ex- I mean, everything you're saying is like check, check, check. Because the Sex Pistols are really kind of an, a boy band, and every if you really kind of dissect it, I mean, I think your analogy of politics and music in this particular instance is are perfect. Because if you start dissecting the Sex Pistols, you you soon find out that they were a band put together by Malcolm McLaren. And yet that's not what, that's not what the popular image of you, you, you barely have to scratch beneath the surface to find that out about them, but they've been remembered and memorialized. And it's like history has almost rewritten itself. It's like this weird kind of like 
time history warp where what actually happened is not what how people think of it as. And I think that is no, I mean, everything you're saying is on point in terms of the way that his, history has been rewritten, but I'm not sure by who or how. It's not true. And that's and yet that's how, that's what we're taught is true, and that that's so weird. I don't know. That's what I kind of try to do. I think with my with my books, to be honest, whether it's writing about vinyl, writing about Cobain or Curtis or Nico, you know, what actually, what actually, what facts? And this is me being forensic as a as a researcher. What facts do we have here? Not like what is a story someone said. Let's let's actually look at the facts we have and. How does those facts underpin a belief and a way of thinking and viewing these people and these ideas? Yeah, I mean, even like look at the Sex Pistols that there's this, you know, I would say that the probably the most recognizable face of that band is probably Sid Vicious. Mm, Yeah. But he was literally a tack on. Mm -hmm. You know, Glenn Maddock was the bass player for the bulk of the band's existence. He played on their biggest song, Anarchy in the UK. Sid Vicious only played bass on one recorded song that band and that was bodies everything else was actually just steve jones playing the bass himself so there's this weird mythology that we've built around them like here's the face and you know like but he was like not even important to the band in in musically in any shape and so we build these we build these mythologies because we i think we need them right yeah that's so true we're building like this satisfaction into ourselves like i need to feel like I look at this guy and I see what I want a punk to be. You know, maybe that's what what starts it. So I have to build a world around that. So he has to become an important part of that band instead of just being like this footnote. And it's it, it's it's kind of sad, but it's also like it's probably one of the most human things that we do. But don't we do that even down to our relationships? Because you know, do you ever, sorry, I'm getting like very philosophical, but do you ever really know someone, you know, and in terms of like, especially when you're first dating someone, you're like, oh, like this idea of who and what they are. I even think, I mean, I've been married for six years and I've been with my husband for eight years. And sometimes I think that's still of him, even after almost, you know, close to a decade together, I'm just kind of like, do you really, if you really knew who I was, would you really love that person? And I think, like you said, that's, maybe that's part of the human condition is only you can exist inside your own mind. Right. There's like, a, for example, I had a friend who died a couple years ago and he was a little bit older than me. I think he was uh, less than 10 years older than me, but somewhere in between five and 10 years older than me. And actually maybe a little bit above. It doesn't matter. He was, he was from LA. I don't know if he was originally from there. I didn't... Um, go that far back with him. But he was part of that whole hair metal scene. Actually, if you watch um, Decline of Western Civilization, Western Civilization Part 2, he's in there. He's one of the people that's interviewed. And uh, he's got this big hair with all the hairspray in it and everything. When I knew him was like way later. He was working as a hairstylist. And he, when he died, I had this very shallow opinion of him. Um, I don't mean uh, he was a shallow person. I just mean I didn't know a ton about him. But I, I had this like idea of who he was. And when I went to his funeral, and it was like in this, like almost like a auditorium type thing, but it was like, a, I guess it was a church. And I guess his wife was very religious. And so it's like this Christian 
um, non-Catholic Christian funeral. And most of the people in there were religious people and they were getting up and they were talking about him at church and all these things. And my mind was just kind of blown because I'm like, uh, I didn't know he believed in God. I didn't know that he was, that he went to church with his wife. I didn't, you know, all these weird, all these stories about him that like just brought out this whole different side. And I'm like, I remember sitting there, like we all had like tissues. And so I remember holding this shitty tissue in my hand in this like gymnasium and going, so this is kind of where we end up, right? With tissues and, and, you know, rented halls. And I'm like, and we don't ever know anything about each other. That Like I thought I knew him pretty well, you know, like I didn't know a damn thing about him. And that's so weird. And it's maybe that's why we have to build those things because something inside of us feels that loneliness. Is that a good way to say it? In, in isolate, not to, not everything always leads back to Ian Curtis, of course. <laughs> um, but, <laughs> but isolation is a Joy Division song. Um, isolation and, you know, can you, like you said, I think you have to be a massive, massive, just, I, I can't even imagine being the person that thinks I'm so wonderful. Of course, everybody loves me. Everybody accepts me. I think you have to be so narcissistic and I'm sure those people exist. I'm sure a lot of people exist that don't even think, um, think about some of the things we're talking about. Like they just, there was this great Janine Garofalo thing from about 20 years ago now. And she was saying how like 90% of humanity, she, they don't care what they eat. She, she's like miming it. So it's on audio. It's not going to sound that funny, but she's like doing this gesture, like she's putting food in her mouth. Like they don't care what goes in here, like in their mouth. They don't go what goes in here in their ears. They don't, they don't care what they're seeing. And so when like the three, three of the main senses of how you navigate your world are just junk, where are you going to end up? You know what I mean? You're not going to have, you're not going to have the raw materials to have these kind of conversations that we're having right now. So the fact that you were even, even contemplating that I think is quite profound, but I think it also is probably a smaller amount of, of people than we'd like to think that actually allow their minds to go there. Cause it's really scary. Yeah, I think that we that's why we clutch onto those other things because it's like um one of the things I talked about on my other podcast is flat earth, this whole movement of these flat earthers. And I don't I can't really say whether they actually believe what they what they're saying, you know, but I do think that it's that idea of I need to latch on to this thing. I need to hold on to this thing because, you know, one of the examples I gave in there is most of the places that I see people who believe in flat earth in America are kind of like the South and areas like red States where automation is threatening most of their jobs. So I'm wondering if there's a connection between all of this insecurity of like our world is about to be destroyed. Our cities and towns may, you know, end up ghost towns because none of us have money to maintain this stuff. If that makes them latch onto these things like, well, you know what? I think the earth is flat. I don't think that it's a globe and I don't care what you say or, you know, the reason that people are so, so adamant about um, Donald Trump, despite the fact that like he continually turns his back on things that he promises them. It's, it's, it's an interesting thing. And I think that that has a lot to do with it is like, fine, if this is broken and this is broken and this makes me feel this way, 
I choose this. It's a willful ignorance. We have to... But do, do you think in that case, though, I mean, all this kind of comes back to you because the world is so, it's so difficult to navigate life that whether it's you're putting a, a shot of heroin into your arm or you are believing the earth is flat or you're like obsessed with Donald Trump, any of these things, it's almost like a, a, a Novocaine, if you would, not to quote the eel, but Novocaine for the soul. Like, I'm just going to use whatever, whatever thing I have that can make me feel even momentarily better or shift my attention from how difficult things are. I'm going to grab onto that, whether it's a band or drugs or whatever it is. Absolutely. I think that's, you know, I would say that's all it is. That's exactly what it is. That's why, you know, like uh, pop music is so persistent <laughs> because it's, it's something that can live in the background. It's something that, you know, we can, we can, oh, this, this soothes me. I'm not really paying attention to it. I'm not really dissecting it. I'm not taking it apart, but it makes me feel X. Mm. It's very funny because every guy I dated pretty much until my husband, they all, like I had this, I wondered why I was single for so long. I'm like, I wonder why. I had a 40, li- 40 point list. I'm like, any guy that I date has to, has to fulfill these 40 points. <laughs> And I'm like, huh, why, 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 why myself? Um, but one of the really important things was like, this is, of course, I'm living in the Bay Area. Must love English music. Must love the Smiths. <laughs> Must love Joy Division. You know, like that was kind of like on there. Now, my husband, who is English, he hates Joy Division. He hates the Smiths. <laughs> and it's like, it's this weird thing because I think also because these bands and being an Anglophile living in California defined who I was for so long, I've kind of let go of holding on to, I don't want to say false icons because that makes it sound like I'm so like above everybody. I've kind of let go of that. And I realized, I guess this does feedback into what we're talking about. Those things serve their purpose for me and I don't need them anymore. And it is sometimes really irritating to me because I'm just like, oh my God, James, we're at this bar and they're playing New Order. And he's like, yeah, that's great, honey. But he doesn't get excited and he doesn't share that passion. But then I realize, like, is that, you know, why is it that I put so much, I vested so much more importance in this? It's really not that important in a lot of ways. And yet I put so much importance into it because I guess I needed to at that time. That was my Novocaine for the soul. Yeah, I think that's why those feelings and i I did that too when i was younger and i think it has to do with you you had 40 points did you have 40 points i don't know if i have 40 points but i definitely had things where i'm like oh one one persists for sure i'm like must read <laughs> yeah oh yeah well that's my husband read a lot we started dating and now he never reads it really irritates me i'm like <laughs> this is not what i bought do you know um was one of, was one of yours cannot use sleeping bag as comforter no but i like that that, that one might need to go on my current list <laughs> what about what about towels are not blankets <laughs> I think this is, these, these things I think are more prevalent with boys. Yeah, also, I was going to say, I think those are probably more better for a woman's list. <laughs> Women yeah. don't tend to do those things. Yeah. Also, um, one was must have bed frame of some variety. And then in parentheses, no mattress or futon on floor. <laughs> <laughs> and you're like, you're like, I can relate these to specific incidences. Oh, dude, yeah. I mean, you're talking to someone that accidentally had sex with a clown once when they were in college. So, you know, I have I have a wealth a wealth of stories and anecdotes because what would happen is I'd be like, I I unfortunately once alcohol and like other drugs sometimes would get in the mix of an evening out. I'd be like, ooh, 
you know, it's, it, there's only so much small, you know, it is kind of, it is kind of hard to bring up like when you're out, like, you know, you're meeting a guy and you're like, so do you consider a blanket, a towel interchangeable <laughs> without looking like a couple, well, I am kind of insane, but you know what I mean? Like, they're just like, huh? Okay. Please fill out this questionnaire. Yeah. yeah, pretty much. Yeah. I'm like, you ain't getting access to this vagina unless, um, at least three fourths of these questions are answered the way I want. Maybe that's why people love things like uh, harmony.com and uh, match.com and all these things. Cause they're like, Oh, I can make people fill out this questionnaire first. I've, you know, I've done, so I've done, actually I met my husband online which to be completely transparent wow. with you. I did meet my husband online, um, but not on those. Like I did, I did this experiment. This is when, sorry, now I'm veering into the romantic life. Is that okay? Is that of okay? Course. How much longer? do we have by the way uh, as long as you want we can stop whenever you want so it's up um, to your time my, I, I cut out the whole day for myself just always so oh my god thank <laughs> you so much I'll, t- I'll tell you this and then we can we can wrap it up because we'll just keep talking endlessly and and anybody that could potentially listen to this will be like i turned off like 50, like two hours ago but um so when i was getting my master's degree and living in san francisco i did this experiment i'm gonna i said i said i'm going to sign up this is like before tinder and all this kind of thing i said i'm gonna sign up to eHarmony, match.com and um it was at the time it was the onion do you remember the onion personals oh yeah Okay. So I'm like, I'm doing all of these and I'm going to go on 60 dates and I'm going to see if I can meet someone on these. And it was really interesting because like at the time on the onion, you just filled out your own thing. It was like about me. And you just put like, I like gin and tonics and rock and roll music. And I like sausages, but I don't like lamb or whatever. You just put whatever you want. <laughs> and, and strangely the one I, that is true. I do not eat. I just, there was this Simpsons episode where um, Lisa decides to be a vegetarian and there's this like flash in her head of Lisa, don't eat me with a lamb. It was a cartoon lamb and we start stop eating lamb. But, the, but anyway, I got way more dates off that than the fucking eHarmony and the, the match, which you had to go in and like fill out like all these like very supposedly nuanced things. Like nobody liked me on there. It was very, very weird. I mean, looking back on it, I'm like, maybe those were just too straight. Like maybe, and, and how this ties into our conversation now, maybe those were too black and white. Maybe it's the more nuanced that the, un, the, the onion personals offered. That's where, you know, that, that was where it was more out for me. Yeah, I, I had a similar experience. Like I went and did one of those things once and it was basically like, sorry. <laughs> you're meant to be really? alone. <laughs> and really? I think you just did you go on the date? You just have too many when you when you approach something with too many expectations, you just kind of block yourself out of any possibility, right? The the nuance and the gray is where all the possibility is. The black and white is already set. So it's boring. It sucks, right? You know, nobody it's so true. you want to be surprised. You know, that maybe that how that plays into romance is, you know, like Romance is kind of dependent upon surprise. Like, oh, I didn't know I liked that. I guess I do. Wow, we're going deep into it now. I'm like, how? I'm like, oh, are we going? Are we going dungeon and ball gags? Or like, where's where are we where are we headed? But no, with, with, with my husband, I would say that that is that is so true. In a way, like black and white could be like, you like Hatful of Hollow by the Smiths. I like Hatful of Hollow by the Smiths. With him, it's like, I do not like Hatful Hollow by the Smiths, 
but the things that even after being with him for eight years, the things that he does things or he'll say things that really surprise me. And I'll be like, Oh my God, that's so cool. And those things are things that you probably, you don't know right away from the, the kind of like deeply etched in lines. It's like you said, it's the other, the other things that come with that. Um, I would say to summarize, don't have sex with clowns unless sober. <laughs> Make sure you buy Why Vinyl Matters and look for You Are Beautiful and You Are Alone, the complete biography of Nico. And um, what else? Read. Read books. And uh, Speaking of books, that's a great transition because I try to end each of these with asking people what, I th- what they think I should read next. So what's your recommendation really? for me? What book should be? And I'll reread it if I've already read it. Have you? Um, okay. Well, really quickly before you say that, can I just can I go back to one other thing really quickly? Of course. Really quick. So there is this band called the Brian Jonestown Massacre. Have you heard of this band? Yes. Okay. So when I was growing up in San Francisco, they were like coming up in San Francisco, and they were just the most dangerous band. Like everybody was like, they would come out. If they they were out like at a club, but the night you were out, it was like, oh my god, Brian Jonestown Massacre is here. They're fucking crazy. They're scary. They're bad. They're dangerous. They do drugs. They smoke. Ah! Okay. So flash forward um, about three, three or six months ago now, and a mutual friend of mine and Joel Guion, who is the percussionist, he does the tambourine in Brian Jonestown, a mutual friend of ours is like, you two have got to connect. You guys, like, Joel's trying to write a memoir Jen's a writer, like I'm signed to Faber and Faber, like you two have to connect. And I'm like, oh, I'm not that really dangerous, crazy man. But you know, I'm always open to stuff. So like me and this guy started emailing and I hadn't listened to the Brian Jonestown Massacre in like decades. Okay. And my only memory of them was from watching the movie Dig, which is a brilliant documentary about the band. Totally. And from and from being like, you know, 21, 22 and being like, Brian Jonestown Massacre is scary. So me and this dude start like having this relationship, not knowing him, not knowing the music, not knowing him as an adult or as a person. We start talking over, over the internet. And it was so beautiful and awesome because we found out like, oh my God, like you were at this place when I was. You went to Frontier Village, which was this... Do you remember Frontier Village? I do. <laughs> I do. I went to Frontier Village. I won tickets from Channel 44 when I was like nine to go to Frontier <laughs> Village. And the fact that like you have this other person, like they, you have this whole language and this history that you shared with them but didn't actually share with them was great. And then the band was coming to the UK. So I'm like, we should get together and talk. And so we already had this whole rapport. And um, we hooked, we went and hung out and like, it was just so fun. It was like, just we didn't do anything. We were just like talking, having some drinks. Like that was it. And then we hung out a couple times and then Joel kept saying to me, oh, come see the band, come see the show. And at this point, in a lot of ways, live music to me equals work because I've been working in the music industry for so long. And I just, I don't like going to shows very much. And I'm like, oh, I don't want to go. I'm really enjoying just kind of having you as a new friend and having this like really amazing connection with you. And finally, he's like, please, please, please. So, okay. So I go to the show last night of their tour here. And I was blown away. And the reason I bring this up is because the fact that like still at age 46, I've seen hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of shows. The fact that I can still go to like a darkened venue and watch live music and have a band just completely take me aback 
And like, I had the, I, I mean, of course, having an orgasm is utter joy, but this was like 40 minutes of me just having like, all I could feel was happiness watching this band. And it was so great and fabulous. And I don't really know where I'm going with this, except always be open to like going to a gig, be open to new people. That's, I think, my number one thing I would say in terms of any advice I'd give to anyone. Because now I have this awesome friend. I love, I absolutely love Brian Jonestown Massacre. And um, Joel and I are actually going to be writing his biography, which is about growing up in the Bay Area in the 70s and 80s and then being in a band in the 90s, which I'm really excited about. So that's not out yet. But yeah, Brian Jonestown Massacre. Love them. Love Joel. You just that's totally blew my mind by bringing up Frontier, Vill- Frontier Village. I used to. That's how I was. When he mentioned Frontier Village, I was like... I was like three. Oh, dude, that's what I'm saying. And, 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 you know, if someone's listening to this, they don't know what it is. Frontier Village would never exist now. It was this like, literally, it's like each area of this amusement park was broken up into a different part of, would you say like the Wild West of America? Yeah, that's probably a good way to describe it mashed up with like Hanna-Barbera. So like you could be hanging out with someone in like a Native American or Indian costume, as we'd call it back then, Native American costume and Fred Flintstone. You're like, here I am. (laughs) Here's Jabber Jaws the shark. Yeah, it's so true. But it's just those kind of things I think are so valuable. And those kind of memories that you share with people are so important. I, I worry that like, because so many people are living virtually online, they're not going to have those kind of signposts of experience in the physical world. Yeah, that is a good point because it kind of harkens back to what, um, what Henry Rollins says in the book about, you know, music, not being digital music, not really existing, you know, not being tied to it physically. And at first, you know, like I, I, I brush over a little bit, but the more I think about that, I'm like, yeah, that is true. There was something about getting home with a cassette, and, you know, like in the beginning, in the intro of the book, you talk about your experience with the Go-Go's album. And... Oh, such an important record to me. I remember doing that with cassettes and, you know, just unwrapping the thing and going, I have to read the lyrics and listen to this, to mm, the lyrics. Yeah. Because uh, it, it, it concreted the experience. I'm like, okay, now I feel like I know this album. And to be honest, even though, you know, like I love streaming music and all that, I don't feel as connected to it as I did then. Well, you could say like that's getting older, but you know, I would say that how can you feel as connected to something if you're not holding it any, I mean, like, you know, going back to the dating analogy, if you just are talking to someone online, I mean, I've had, I've gone on lots of dates for people I've just met online or like someone for work I've talked to online and, and then meet them. And it's like, you can have this great rapport online, but then you meet in real life and it's like, oh my God, the way you chew your food is fucking <laughs> disgusting. I hate you. There was this one time, there was this guy, I was, this is when MySpace first hit. And this guy like, and I were talking on MySpace and I was going up to Portland for work. And um, he's like, let's meet up. And like, his voice was like this. And I was just like, can't deal. Goodbye. <laughs> like I never, like even no matter how good looking he was, like it didn't matter because I never would have, gone for I never would have been attracted to that does that make sense like in real real life so putting that to the music you're experiencing something but you're not holding it in your hand you're not completely engaging with it in the same sort of way if you're reading the lyrics of something you're physically holding in your hand you can put that cassette or that vinyl up to your nose and smell it 
those are all things that are really a part of the human condition, really, aren't they? Yeah, we, that's a sense that maybe we're, we're losing contact with the sense of touch. Yeah. Actually, Cut, um, Cut Chemist in the book, he says some really great things about that. And one of the things he says is, I'm not going to quote him correctly, but he says, we're losing so much of the physical world. Yeah. And it's so, so true. I'm like, oh my God, it's so true. It's so true. Like I, I am going back to your question about books. I am an apps. I mean, I read probably three to five books a week. Like I constantly am reading. I'm a complete nerd. And, but now I have so many books. It's like, well, do I really need to own this book? You know what I mean? Like for for me to have, take up, find space in my house for this. And for me to spend maybe that extra two or $5 pounds, whatever, whatever country I'm in, do I really have to have it? And that, that is something else you kind of put into it. So books that you have to read, you've probably read all these already. Um, but Augustin Burroughs, have you ever heard of Augustin Burroughs? He wrote his really famous. Yeah. Have you read a lot of his stuff? I haven't read any of it. So it's a perfect suggestion. So I stumbled upon this book a couple years ago and it's by Augustin Burroughs, who's very, very well known for the book Running with Scissors, which is great. But Running with Scissors recalls his um, unconventional childhood. He has two other books, one called Possible Side Effects and one that's called Magical Thinking. And they're basically little vignettes from his life. And they're just, like you can read, they're each probably like each little vignette in the book. It's kind of David Sedaris style in a lot of ways, but I find Augustin Burroughs' um, humor a little bit funnier. I cannot lie. Like I just, I love it. And he just, he just says and does things like you're just not supposed to be saying, you're not supposed to say or do. Like in one of the, one of the um, anecdotes, he employs this midget to be his house cleaner. <laughs> and um, he, he, Augustin Burroughs is very tall and he starts noticing that like in his house, there's basically a line of dirt, like from like zero to like three feet. It's very clean, but then anything above is untouched. And I'm not making it sound very funny. It's like so un-PC and so not the way we're, we're, we're taught that we should think now. You will laugh out loud. Like it's not, it's not like, it's not like a, it's not a book that's like, oh my God, you're, you're going to be like, that's wrong. And yet you'll be laughing and be like, oh my God, I should not, I should not be laughing at this because this is so wrong, but it's so, but it's so right. <laughs> it's kind of like, it's kind of like what I always return to. Like, you know, you have that book that you're like, you kind of go back to, it's kind of like a comf- very comforting book. Right. Um, but yeah. So if you want to think of, a, of another book, this is going to be your more serious book. Like when you're like, okay, I want to engage my brain. It's by an author named Douglas Murray. He's a British author. He and I have the same agent. Um, and he wrote a book. It's called The Strange Death of Europe, Immigration, Identity, and Islam. Wow. And, and I started reading this book and I, I, I have to be honest, I've not been able to finish it because I found it so, dis, so disturbing. Not disturbing because he's saying things that I found like, oh, you're an asshole. More because it goes back to what you were saying earlier on in our discussion. I had to, st- I had to stop and think and be like, actually, I totally see that. I understand what he's saying. And it's not by not engaging with this, you are not, you're not really engaging with the ramifications of what's happening. If that makes any sense. I think it's a really, I think it's an important book. I'm about three, four, three fourths of the way through. I'll, I'll I'll read like a chapter or two and I'll be, I'll just sit and kind of digest it. I'll, you know, I'll go back to Doug, to Augustin Burroughs and midget, midget cleaners. 
and then I'll dip back into I'll dip back into the Douglas Murray book. But yeah, that one's called The Strange Death of Europe: Immigration, Identity, and Islam. It's it's really good. I had a similar experience with a book called Everybody Lies, and it's about like Ooh. big data and the beginning. Ooh, I like that. Talking about how like uh, talking about the reality of like uh, Google searches on like racism and stuff like that, especially during um, the Obama uh, elections. And I would it's called everybody lies. Yeah, I can't. I, I I can't remember the author's name right now. It's Seth something. Um, but basically, I would read a little bit of it and then just get like basically nauseated and be like, "Oh, okay, I need to stop." <laughs> and I had to put it down. It took me like six months to read that book. I mean, it's just of course, like now I'm like going off and we 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 cannot keep going on because let's keep going on. But I think. <laughs> That's the whole thing. It's like we're powerless over this whole thing. There was, I, you'll know this better because you live in Silicon Valley. I can't remember the what the title of the book was, but it was about um, this Silicon Valley startup, and it was like blood processing. Do you remember this? It was a oh, woman yeah. that was like the CEO, and it was about a guy that worked there, and it's like his memoir. And it's absolutely brilliant, but it really ties back to kind of the themes of what we're talking about right now is not digging underneath the surface of things, not evaluating, not being engaged, not having the space in your mind to think about it, but also not having the space with your friends or colleagues or your community to talk about stuff. Um, and I think that all those, all those threads are kind of at the, the, core of what we're discussing today and that's thank you for thank you for creating this as a as a safe space but as a place to talk about this stuff i think it's you know it's important and not done enough do you want to tell everybody who you are what you do and where they can find you because after our conversation i'm sure they're going to want to look you up in some way so please direct them you are so kind. My name is Jennifer Otter Bickerdyke, and I am a rock and roll cultural historian. And what I mean by that is I have a PhD, which is very exciting, but I've also worked in the music industry at labels, at different social media companies for the last terrifyingly 30 years. And I think it's really important that we document rock and roll as a not just a cultural phenomena but as a you know something in life that has as power power to create power to unite and we take it seriously and that that's kind of what i'm all about and where can they find you do you have uh oh sorry i forgot about that part (laughs) um i have my own website it's jennifer otter bickerdyke b-i-c-k-e-r-d-i-k-e or it's jen otter bickerdy and that's my twitter handle One of the best ways to support a podcast is to go over to the podcast app that you're using, especially if it is Apple Podcasts, and take five minutes to sit down and rate and review the show. Just give it a star rating, give it a paragraph letting people know what value you get out of the show. Because that's how we communicate to the world what this show is about if they haven't listened to it before. And it's also how we communicate to guests or possible guests what the show that is inviting them on is about and what people think of it. So please take the time to rate and review us.